I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Suzanne Rusan. I'm like, disabled unite! You know, I'm taking one for the team. I am the hooker with the heart of gold. That and more, but before that, I just want to announce that after seven years, Risk is finally coming to the great city of New Orleans. We're coming to New Orleans. On November 11th, November 11th, the theme that night is legends. So folks who live in New Orleans or nearby, pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Everyone else, plan to come out to that show November 11th. And don't forget to go to adamandeve.com for a limited time only. You get 50% off just about any item. And from a huge selection and from some of the best brands, when you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs plus a free exclusive gift. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. That exclusive gift is the clit bumper, my friends. The ideal pleasure ring for couples. AdamandEve.com. Use risk at the checkout. That's the code R-I-S-K at AdamandEve.com. Finally, how great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? I mean, it would be a goddamn dream come true if you ask me. But It has come true in a way because there's Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the GD post office. No more running around during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. And then the mail person picks it up. You'll save money. With Stamps.com, too, you get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. And you get special postage discounts you won't get 
at the post office. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer. It's a four week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is the cashmere stage band behind me now it's a high school band uh from cashmere high school houston texas in the 70s and this week's episode of risk is live from st louis our first time ever and my first time ever in the city of st louis such good down-to-earth folks there. It was so moving. I mean, people came from all over the Midwest, actually, for that show. A lot of people were like, oh, I drove six hours. I drove seven hours. Holy shit. I remember there was a young man who came up to me after the show, expressed that he was going through a really, really, really rough patch in his life and that Risk was really helping him through it. He was in tears as he was talking to me and I'll tell you, it's just such a gift to me to hear that from people. The show certainly saved my own life. But some days, uh, I just don't think I can completely appreciate, completely grasp, completely process and comprehend how much it's meant to other people. You know, my brain is just so, so, so deeply in the habit of looking at Twitter and Facebook and seeing what some of my peers are doing and saying, well, Kevin, you haven't been cast in that movie. You didn't get hired for that TV show. You didn't make this much money for this. You haven't achieved that much recognition for that. It's fucking relentless. I go through some weeks or some months where I can quiet it down a bit. And then there's other times where it's just like, fuck, back as loud and clear as ever. And so some days I just have to yell at myself, no, look, there's this that we're creating. And so it's people like that guy that came up to me after the show in St. Louis that really helps me keep it in perspective. Let's get right into the show now. Our first storyteller had never done this before. Brand new at this sort of thing. And she did a spectacular job. We're going to start with a young lady named Regan Wan. Live from St. Louis. Here she is now, Regan Wan, with a story we call Lost Highway. 
I came five hours to share a story that I have never told to another human being prior to admitting that I was going to be on the show to my husband. Truly no one has heard this story. So, of course, Strangers is the best way to tell a story that has been a secret since you were 18 years old. Uh, Before I tell this story, and let me just set the stage for you a little bit. This is going to happen in the early 90s in Natchitoches, Louisiana, which probably no one here has ever heard of, and that's okay. Uh, Hey, one person, yes, winning at St. Louis, yeah. Um, But before I tell the actual story, I have to tell you one thing about myself. I look pretty laid back now. I am pretty laid back now, and that's a good thing. But I am the daughter of a ballerina clearly. And uh, being the short, fat daughter of a ballerina, and they are known for being relaxed human beings. Um, To say that my upbringing was a little bit high-strung is probably understating the issue. Um, This was a woman who, if you interpreted the instructions sometimes in French, wrong. It could be anything from a screaming contest to being ignored for many hours to being thrown down a set of stairs. So to say that I was a little uptight as an 18-year-old is reasonable. That is a reasonable expectation of me at 18. It had gotten to the point where I had couch surfed to graduate from high school so that I could finish before I moved to Natchitoches, Louisiana, where my father was, and he was completely not even aware that I lived in the house. So really polar opposite. And so when I was in Natchitoches, I was trying to figure out what kind of adult I was going to be. I'd been this little baby adult for a long time, and I was really working hard to figure out what kind of adult I was going to be. I was trying to have adventures. I was trying to try new things. And like one of the very first things I did when I got to Natchitoches was I went to a party, got invited into a three-way. I was like, this is an adventure. I'm going to do this. This is going to be awesome. Got into the bed, and it was too hot people. And I was like, this is awesome. And then I was like, like, oh my God, too many, too many, ah, too many limbs. Ah! And not only did I get out of the bed, I ran out of the room, out of the house, got into my car, and drove out of town. I mean, that was how freaked out by that I was. So that was not the kind of adult I was going to be. I, I thought maybe, but no. So do you have a picture? Kind of? Okay, yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, so I'm in Natchitoches, Louisiana, and if you've never been to Natchitoches, Louisiana, it's in the northern part of the state. The only good thing about living in Louisiana is that in the early 90s, the drinking age was 18, uh, which meant that I could get into any club in the state, and that was fantastic. But Natchitoches has like two bars, and one of them's a redneck bar, so not really my scene. So most of the time, and this would be on like... Wednesday, Sunday evening, a lot of us would pile into a car and drive the four hours south to New Orleans because that's where all the good clubs are, right? So on this particular day, I was climbing the walls. I had this horrifying daffodil yellow uh, guest bedroom that I was sleeping on a futon in, and I had called every friend I had. Everyone was either working or not interested in going out. And my one release at this time, the one place where I really 
really could get like not too many limbs here was on the dance floor. And I was a wildcat on the dance floor. I didn't care who you were. I was grinding up against everyone and I would bounce every single thing. I didn't even know what twerking was, but man, I did a lot of it. It was great. So dancing was like the one release I had because I didn't do drugs at that point in time either. Maybe I should have started there, but that's another story. So I needed to get my dance on this night. I mean, I needed it. And I didn't care that it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I put on my little skin-tight black top, and I did my hairs, and I got into my little escort, and I was going to drive to New Orleans by myself. Don't know what I was going to do for the four hours after I got there until the clubs opened, but I would work it out when I got there. So I'm in my car, and again, if you've never driven in Louisiana, it is a broad, flat expanse of red clay, pine barrens, and poverty. I mean, there is nothing. You trance out. when you, It's four hours. It's just, you know, there are no landmarks. There's nothing to look at. So I'm a couple of hours into this trip. I don't know how many because I'd been tranced out for most of it. And I'm just like, oh, am I there yet? Am I there yet? And I'm kind of mulling everything over, and I'm driving along. And out of the corner of my eye, I catch this flicker of yellow. And I'm like, what, what is that? And a car passes me. And it gets in front of me. And then it kind of slows down. And I'm like, oh, man. So then I pass the car. And I get in front of the car, and I'm going along at my normal speed. And I'm like, okay, well, that's done, whatever. Who has a yellow car? Then there's that yellow car again. I'm like, what the hell? And it passes me, and it gets in front of me again. And then it slows down again. And now I'm starting to get a little pissed, because, you know, sometimes people are assholes, and it's a long-ass drive. And I'm like, am I going to have to deal with this the whole way to New Orleans? So I pass the car, and this time I'm, like, getting my glare ready, and I glance over, and the guy driving the yellow car kind of looks over at me and kind of gives me a little grin. And I pass, and I'm like, that was weird. So then he passes me, and this time he looks over, and he waves. And I'm like, the hell? And I notice that he's got a really nice smile. I'm like, huh, that's kind of, huh. And then he gets in front of me and slows down again. So I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to pass him again. If that's what we're doing, that's what we're doing. Let's do it. So I go to pass him, and I look over, and I wave back. And he kind of laughs, and I kind of laugh. And I notice that his eyes crinkle up real nice. And I start noticing that he's got nice curls that are kind of bleached out, go with his tan. Maybe he works outside. I don't know. I'm like, hmm, he's kind of cute. So this goes on for, it was at least 20 minutes. I mean, like, I'm passing him. He's passing me. He's like, hey, I'm like, hey. And he's, like, trying to mouth words. It's 900 degrees and 98% humidity. I'm not rolling my window down. I'm like, I can't hear you. So we're doing this. And then every time a car comes onto the highway, we're like, oh, no. And then we have to catch up with each other. And I'm laughing and having a good time. And this is, like, the most fun drive to New Orleans ever. And I'm like, this was the right thing to do. Two o'clock in the afternoon, I love you. So I'm going, and then there's an exit coming up. And you know how there are those exit signs? And there are three things on this exit. One of them is a gas station, one of them is a waffle house, and one of them is a hotel. I see you all are thinking ahead. (laughs) 
he sees the sign and I see the sign and he pulls up beside me and kind of gestures to the hotel like, hmm? And without even thinking, without, I did not even bat an eye, people. I did not, I mean, nothing. I did, I just went, yes, yes, <laughs> that's a great idea. Let's do that. And he speeds off. And I'm like, well, crap. That didn't work out. He's gone. And then I notice he's getting off the exit. And I'm like, woo, it's on. And he pulls off the exit, and I see him go. And then a minute later, I pull off the exit. He's already at the office getting a key. I pull into the parking lot, and I'm like, woohoo! Not thinking, not thinking at all on this one. Not one thought, people. Not, um, for the record, I, I was not murdered either. Um, <laughs> I survived. So I just wanted to, I thought you might be getting a little worried at this point. I wanted to make sure you knew. So I pull up and he's coming out of the office. He shakes the key at me. I am still laughing and I pull up and he gestures to the room, which I happen to have just parked in front of. I'm like, woo! And I jump out of the car and he goes, hi, my name. And I'm on him. I mean, I'm just on him. And he never gets his name out. We don't say a word to each other. And we are like, tearing our clothes off and I'm shoving him through the door and he throws me on the bed and I bounce right off onto the floor and we're laughing and we're biting and we're kicking and we're scratching and ha 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 laughing hysterically one thing we're not doing is talking there is no talking happening it is none of that baby but there is like a lot of other stuff going on so this goes on no joke no exaggeration I'm not trying to make you be impressed with me this is never happened again this goes on for five solid hours and we are just on and on and on and on and think of all the sex acts and just do them multiple times and throw in a like yes I'm turning you over now okay and then drink some water and then we're back in and it's It's all good. So just five solid hours. And at the end of five hours, he takes my hand and kind of half drags me because my legs aren't working so good no more. And uh, he drags me into the shower. We take this really nice shower together. And without a word, we walk next door to the Waffle House and he buys me waffles. And um, we come back outside to our cars And he turns around and he's got this big sweet smile on his face. And he gives me this huge hug like we've been friends for years. And just holds me in it for the longest minute. And then he gets into his car and drives away. And I watched him go. I'm still all glowy, you know. I go to get into my car to finish driving to New Orleans. And all of a sudden little bit of French, my mother's voice comes screaming up out of the depths of my guts. And without even realizing it had started, I am sobbing. That horrible, gut-wrenching, you can't get a breath, (gasps) sobbing. And the voice is screaming at me, what is wrong with you? What the fuck is wrong with you? What are you thinking? Do you know what could have happened to you? You could be dead right now. You could have been raped or assaulted. That guy could have killed you. This is awful. He could have had friends. You could have blah. And it's just all pouring over me. And I feel terrible. And I want to die. And I can't believe what a fucked up excuse for a human being I am and who does this 
I am not worthy of being an adult, and I'm not worthy of life at this point. And it's just pouring. And the tears, I run out of tears, and I'm just dry heaving the sobs at this point. And this little, tiny, tiny voice starts to come up and very, very subtly overtake my mother's voice. And it says, you didn't die. You didn't get assaulted. That was definitely not rape. (laughs) And you know what, Reagan? It was fun. You had a great time. That was awesome. And that is going to make a great story someday. (laughs) Not that day, but someday. And slowly I pulled myself together. And I thought, yeah, this may be the adult that I'm going to be. And you know what? Fuck it. Literally and figuratively. (laughs) And instead of going to New Orleans and get my dance on, because we know I couldn't have stood up at that point. Come on, people. I turned around and I drove back to Natchitoches and immediately started planning for how to get the hell out of Natchitoches. And within three months, I had saved up enough money to move to Louisville, and I've been there ever since. Thank you very much. Reagan won! Awesome. Uh, Yeah, I was trying to think backstage, do I have a a story about sex and transportation? (laughs) I never learned how to drive, which is probably a really good thing. Otherwise, I might end up at those truck stops all the time. (laughs) But I did once blow a guy in the subway. (laughs) It was actually after The State, my sketch comedy group, uh, had already been on TV for a while... And I ended up, like, when the group broke up and when we lost our career, I ended up being a cater waiter. And so that was really, really mortifying to, like, you know, be recognizable from TV but being a cater waiter. But this particular night, I'm wearing a tux, and it's 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm coming back from some big gig. And I noticed this guy who's got, like, that orange and yellow or beige sort of jumpsuit that guys wear when they work on the tracks of the train. He's, he's a transit worker. He had this amazing, like, Saturday night fever kind of look to him, you know, like, very Italian stallion, um, uh, very, like, Tony Manero or something like that. Kind of a longish 70s hair and kind of swarthy and uh, studly. And uh, we kept staring at each other. And now, these sorts of situations are difficult because, you know, start flirting with the wrong guy, you could end up dead. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm like, wait, is he looking at... Yeah, I think we really are looking at each other, even though he looks, you know, as straight as can be. And finally, he motions to me, and he's like, come on over here, I know. And he knew this little alcove behind a fence, like, that was so shadowy that no one else would know. And he could, like, let us in with his key into this little fenced-in alcove area. I was like, oh, my God, this is really, right, like, secret stuff we're doing here. And so I get on my knees, and he lets out his, like, he was enormous, and... 
Uh, we only had one bit of conversation. I was like, where are you from? And he said, Canarsie. <laughs> so he was from Canarsie. And uh, that was about all we needed to say to each other. But I just kept thinking the whole time. I was like, wow, this is so like a porno because I am in a tux. He's dressed in a jumpsuit for working on the tracks, but I'm the one on my knees. Isn't that neat? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, there's no real great lesson to be learned from that one. Just a happy memory to return to every now and then. Okay, now like I said, uh, 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 some of our performers will not have done this before. Our next storyteller, she has never told a story on stage like this before. She, the way she put it backstage, she says, she's never done anything like this before, except always <laughs> with her friends and family uh, sharing stories. So please welcome to the stage, Amy Brooks! <laughs> So I was born to two of the most optimistic people you've ever met, which is sometimes code for stupid, but she's here, so we won't talk about it. So I was kind of bathed in this big soup of eternal optimism from birth, and my parents were kind of like the JFK and Jackie of the little trailer park we lived in in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. They saw everything as an adventure, and they were just excited about everything, and they were kind of like the king and queen of their little Camelot. And Unfortunately, like that original Camelot story, ours kind of has a sketchy ending. Although Arlie Harvey Oswald was an 18-wheeler that went over the side of an overpass. So this would be where most people panic and the worry sets in, but not my mother. No way. My mother is a confirmed believer in her motto, which is this. You got to start from where you are. So we did. It was me and Jackie and my new little baby brother, and we'll call him John John. And um, we jumped in our 1974 Chevy Monte Carlo white, and we threw Helen Reddy's You and Me Against the World into our eight-track cassette player, and we marched on. And I was a true believer in everything she was saying. You just got to start from where you are. So a couple years pass, and my mom decides to remarry. And when my mom decides to do something, she does it. And she married a man with six kids who had buried two wives. And so we were this big sort of redneck fiesta of a family. I went from being the oldest of two to number seven of eight, which is a difficult transition. My stepdad, my new stepdad, was not from the school of, you got to start from where you are. He is from the school of, life sucks and then you die, which he was entitled to. My mom didn't notice that at all. She was not dissuaded from her little philosophy and we marched on and so when the sole breadwinner of the family of 10 loses his job, that's no big deal. You just pack up the kids and the pregnant cocker spaniel and you move 100 miles from everyone you know and start from where you are. And um, when the oldest of the stepchildren decides the best place to shoot himself would be on the interstate during rush hour, you just kind of manage that situation and marshal on. And when you know one of the stepsisters is killed in a robbery at the place she works, you just, you pick yourself up and you just go from there. And so this is what I've been doing my entire life is just marching forward and not worrying and start from where you are and it's all going to work out. So I grow up and I get married and we have all the problems that young married people have, intermittent poverty, 
job changes. His mother. Um, it's a different story. I don't think we even noticed the whole infertility thing for a little while. We were like, weren't getting it. But we weren't upset about it. I don't remember a big conversation or this being a big deal. We just kind of, you know, you start from where you are. And so where we were was adoption land. So, okay, we can live in adoption land. So we start that whole process. And that whole process is like a cross between being a Supreme Court nominee and a Miss America contestant. So you fill out all these forms and they check your taxes and they do a background check and you have to have physicals. And then comes the talent portion, which is where you make a scrapbook so that your life is precious to whatever unwed pregnant teenager may have your baby. And then is the interview portion of the show, which is where they sent, in my case, the super uptight social worker to my house. Her name was Tonya. Not Tanya, Tonya. And they ask you... They ask you super riveting questions like, so what makes you think you'd be a good parent? Well, I'm popular and fun and my kids' friends love me. And do you think your marriage is ready for children? <laughs> yeah, aren't they all? And what form of discipline do you think you'll use for your child? Clearly, waterboarding. That's a no-brainer. So she chose to approve us for some reason and we settled in to wait and they had prepared us to wait years. So we waited and we waited and we waited like two whole weeks. And we get this phone call at seven o'clock. That should have been a clue, by the way. So we get this phone call at seven o'clock on a Monday morning. I'm not generally up at seven o'clock on a Monday morning. So we get this phone call and it's the adoption agency. Mrs. Brooks, would you be interested in like a three-year-old blonde hair, blue-eyed boy Available now, my brain exploded. Visions of crafts and playdates and pony rides and birthday parties were dancing through my head while the woman was saying to me, vaguely I recall this, yeah, his dad killed his mom and he might have witnessed that a little bit and then his dad killed himself and so then he went to live with an aunt and uncle and he's had two failed placements in the 10 months since this whole thing happened. Did not discourage me at all because I was mentally redecorating my spare room the whole time she was talking. So we drive over to meet him, which is like this really weird blind date with three-year-old. So we drive over, got lost. He's in Illinois, we're in Missouri. We get there and he opens the door. It was like a Disney movie. The music swelled in the background. Woodland creatures danced and sewed things. It was perfect. And he looks at me, and he's got these blue football footy pajamas on, and he sticks his hands on his hips, and he says, I've been waiting for you. You're my new mom and dad. This kid could have had both my kidneys right there on that front porch. I was hooked. So we go in the house, and he shows us his Hot Wheels, and they're like the greatest Hot Wheels I've ever seen in my entire life. And then he wants to know if I'll read him a book, and so we sit on the couch, and he plays with my hair while I read One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. And I'm thinking, this is the greatest book I've ever read. Dr. Seuss is a literary genius. <laughs> and that night, so the grown-ups can talk, we tucked him into bed. And when he hugged me, it was like two puzzle pieces that were meant to fit together. And he smelled that little boy smell of like baby powder and dirt. <laughs> And I was intoxicated by this child. So two weeks later, we had him home. Our church threw us this big toddler shower with like 100 people. And okay, in the middle of that, he did throw himself on the floor and scream, I hate this stupid party. Why can't we just go home? That's what I, well, I know that now. But thank you. Where were you like 18 years ago? So we, uh, 
we had family pictures taken. We went to Disney World, and we did all of that in the first six weeks. We were excited. So things are going along kind of smooth. We're all nestled in our little ranch house with our little race car bed and our Thomas the Tank Engine wallpaper. And we go out of town for a few days, and we have the neighbor pick up our mail. So we get back. I walk over to the neighbor's house, and I get our mail, and there's a certified letter. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but good news never, ever arrives in a certified letter. So what's important to know is that my son has a half-brother who's 10 years older. They have different dads. So when this whole thing happened with their mom, Brian immediately went to Iowa to live with his dad. And his dad's Doug and his girlfriend Tammy had a long history of, like, drugs and drinking and divorce and DUIs and just kind of sketchy. And um, this letter was telling us that they were suing to block our adoption and that they wanted guardianship. They didn't want to adopt him. They just wanted custody of him and his social security check. It was like falling off a cliff. So I completely panicked. I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. And my husband takes the letter, and now he can't speak, and he can't breathe, and somebody's got to raise this kid. And so we do what we always do in a crisis. We drove to my mother's house. Because she knows where to start from, right? You're going to start from where you are. So we walk in her house. We hand her this letter to Miss Start From Where You Are. She reads it, and all the color drains out of her face. And she begins to cry. What? This is the person who knows what to do. I've seen her throw funerals together. I've watched her navigate weeping children. And she's got nothing. And I panicked. So this was in court for two and a half years. But we had to live our lives like nothing was going on. So my husband would get up and go to work every day. And I would get up and be a stay-at-home, not sure what I am, because the jury is literally still out on whether or not I'm going to be this kid's mother. In the meantime, Josh relaxes, and he gets real comfortable with us. And when he got comfortable, all hell broke loose. This kid could go from sweet and cuddly and adoring me to Incredible Hulk time, raging, rampaging destroying our house in like two seconds flat with no indication of what it could be anything I handed him a pair of socks which he put on himself and he started screaming I hate you I hate you you're so stupid these socks hurt my feet and the line is on my toes okay I can fix that but not this kid he could tear down mini blinds he hated mini blinds he could knock holes in walls and he could destroy a room faster than you could figure out what to do about it. If you, anybody needs mini blinds put up, I'm pro. I can spackle with the best of them. And I can hang a door back on a hinge that's been ripped off by a really irate four-year-old. So this just kept going on. But other times, things were great. And we played with Legos. And we went to the park. And he spent six months dressed in a Batman costume. How many of you have seen us in Schnucks and St. Charles? Totally, we were there. So time passed. And our toddler turned into a preschooler. And then our preschooler turned into a kindergartner, and we're still in court. And our lawyer was sort of an idiot savant. She looked completely homeless, but she was like a legal genius. And she didn't get disbarred until two weeks after our case was done. So she is actually in prison at this moment, I kid you not. So... I'm spending my days wondering what's going to happen. I've got this angry open wound of a kid who's calling me bitch half the time and then clinging to me and begging me not to leave him. I couldn't drop him off at school without making a phone call and saying we're going to need the extraction team. They would come peel him out of the car. So the whole time this is going on I started getting sick. 
I um, started having high blood pressure and I had chest palpitations and I had this tumor, like tennis ball shaped tumor in the middle of my neck that I couldn't figure out why everybody else couldn't feel it because it was so obvious to me. Went to the doctor, he couldn't feel it. Went to, had an MRI, had a CT scan, nothing. I could not figure this out. It drove me crazy. It was like a rock in your shoe, like you couldn't ever really like let go of this feeling. And I walked around like this all the time. And I would slog through my days like somebody had filled my hip boots with wet cement. And then I'd lay down at night and I would kind of plan our life on the run because I was totally going to skip town with them if it ever went south. And In the meantime, I'm trying to find help for a really upset five-year-old, which is almost impossible to find. Everybody has an idea of what you should do, and none of them work, except just holding him and kind of letting him scream. And it was something. We keep going back and forth to court. The other team never really does what they're supposed to do to fulfill their end of the bargain. And finally, the judge in Illinois has enough of it after two and a half years, decides that their petition is not valid, and they move us to Missouri, which is where we needed to be to begin with. So we get this family court date scheduled, and family court, they do like to do adoptions all on one day. So you're kind of there with everybody else who's all excited and happy, and we had like 15 of our friends, and it was kind of like an atmosphere of like a real quiet circus. And uh, you kind of wait for them, they tell everybody to show up at nine, and then you wait for them to call you. So I'm waiting, and the whole time everybody's kind of laughing and talking around me. I'm watching the door because I think this other couple is going to show up, and they're just going to blow up our day because I can't believe we finally got to this point that we're going to get this over with. But they didn't, and we called us into the court, and Judge Briscoe read our petition, and he says, does anybody have any testimony they'd like to offer? Well, I look down, and my five-year-old is doing this. (laughs) I almost puked. So Judge Briscoe calls him up to the stand. They swear him in. They turn on the microphone. And Judge Briscoe says, what would you like to say? And Josh says, listen, God picked them, and God picked me, and he made us a family. And my mom says, if you'll sign the stupid papers, we can go eat lunch. (laughs) So everybody laughed, and Judge Briscoe signed the papers, and we took a bunch of pictures, and we went to eat lunch. And I... Can you not? I left my tennis ball tumor in, the, in that room that day. But now my worry, because I've learned that while worry can't be wished away, it can be managed, which is a good thing when you're Joshua's mother, because this was not our last trip to a courtroom. No, no, no. So he, as he gets bigger, he gets a little, his outbursts get a little bit scarier, and he's about 13. He would vacillate between wanting to know if he could sleep with us and running away in the middle of the night. And then he embraced a life of smoking. So in order to do that when you're 14, you need money, and I'm not providing that. And he and a couple of his buddies started breaking into cars for cigarettes and money, which that was fun, middle of the night phone calls. So we did that for a while. But then finally, my husband was in the hospital. He's about 15, can't drive. I get a phone call. Mom, yeah? I need you to come pick me up. Well, that was odd because he was in two bedrooms down the hall from me. I said, uh, where are you? I wrecked Dad's car. And I'm thinking to myself, you wrecked it in the driveway? I said, are you hurt? I'm bleeding everywhere. I said, Joshua, where are you? I'm on Mexico Road. Now, Mexico Road is huge. And he can't be any more specific than that. So I'm jumping into my clothes, and I'm wondering how this happened to me, and I get out of my car, and I get a call from the police. Because at this point, we're on a first-name basis, and they have my cell phone. And they said, Mrs. Brooks, this is Officer Collins from St. Peter's Police Department, 
and we have your Mercury Mountaineer behind the Dollar Tree, and no one's with it. Do you have any idea who's driving your car? So I tell them the whole story. They tell me how to get there. I show up, four cop cars, all the lights. Dearly departed Mercury Mountaineer wrapped around a tree. No Joshua. So we're all talking about what to do, and it occurs to me that he's whispering. So I think to myself, he's close by. So we turn off all the lights of all the cop cars, and we turn the lights off one last time for the Mercury Mountaineer. Sad. And I dial his cell phone number, and it lights up behind the dumpster at the Dollar Tree. So he has a pretty good sense of when it's up. And so he comes over, and they said, well, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know what? He stole a car. And you arrest people that steal cars. And so they put him in the back of this police car, and I watched this cop car drive away, and I thought to myself, we're going to figure this out, and we're going to get through it. So now he's 18, and we have way more good days than bad, and he was going to come tonight, and we kind of decided maybe that wasn't a great idea. And uh, he's doing pretty well, but he doesn't have this spark of optimism that I grew up with, and I hope that someday he can get the magic of that. Because you really need that when you realize where you are, and you have to start from there. This is Risk. This is Beirut behind me now, and we just heard from Amy Brooks. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you get four to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com risk and enter the code risk to save $3 
on any new subscription. Loot Crate is more than just a subscription service. It's an entire community of fans that share their experience and interact with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. And they guarantee at least $40 in value, sometimes a lot more in every crate. Every month there's a different theme and all items are curated around that theme. Previous crates have included items from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, and many more. From bad guys doing good things for all the wrong reasons to good guys with questionable tactics, August is the perfect time to explore anti-hero. Walk the hero-villain line with this 100% exclusive collection of items from DC Comics, Archer, Dark Horse, and Kill Bill that includes two great collectibles, a wearable, and of course, our monthly tea. And don't forget the pin. Remember, you only have until the 19th of August at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate and when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 off your new subscription today. Let's get back to the show. Our next story comes to us from stand-up and sketch comedian Suzanne Roussan. She told this one live in St. Louis. It's Suzanne Roussan with a story we call With a Heart of Gold. Thanks to Kevin. Oh my gosh, is this great or what? It's awesome. So, ever since I was a little girl, I've always wanted to be a prostitute. I don't know where the rumor started that boys are hornier than girls, but that is just not so. Not in my experience. When I was eight years old, I discovered the water intake jets on the side of the pool at the public swimming pool. From ages 8 to 12, I spent my entire summer plastered against the pool, humping, humping the, the side of the pool. What? I'm practicing my kicks. What? I was not practicing my kicks. When I was uh, three years old, I used to dress up my Barbies like prostitutes, and, or what I thought was prostitutes should dress like. They looked more like they were going to the ice capades or something. But I would take the little Barbie t-shirt, and I'd belt it. So it's a mini dress, put little Barbie underwear on, little high heels, little feather bow. And then I'd stand them on the corners of the linoleum tile in the kitchen floor. <laughs> because streetwalkers stood on corners, right? <laughs> So, and a kid would drive by in the Barbie car, and I wasn't really quite sure what was supposed to happen after that, but I knew playing like that made me feel really tingly. So I grew up uh, with my girlfriends. We would watch westerns, and all my girlfriends, they always wanted to be like the love interest, the, the nice fair lady in the nice petticoats, and she's the school marm or whatever, the one needed saving, in need of saving. I always wanted to be the saloon madam. She was the coolest, she was the most successful person in any Western. No matter what happened, everybody kissed the asses of the saloon, madam, because where are you going to get your liquor and your pussy from, you know, if you don't? 
So, you know, Hooker with the Heart of Gold. I always wanted, I thought that was the coolest, most empowering character. Fast forward years later, I'm hanging out with my girl Nora, okay? Now, Nora is this little waif, beautiful little, little chiclet, little blonde chiclet. Uh, and she just had this way about her. Or she also, uh, by the way, had this cackle laugh of like, it sounded like a rooster watching The Simpsons for, sort of just, ah! for some reason. She made it work, though. She made it work. She would come into a room, and she had this way. Nobody would be paying attention to us. And so she would just like, oh, I have to adjust my stocking. And all of the guys' eyes in the room would like immediately look to her. She had that magic about her. She would take out a cigarette. By the time the cigarette was taken out, there's five guys lined up to light it for her, you know? So we hung out, and she finally came up to me. And uh, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm a call girl for a high-end escort service because she always had these million-dollar dresses on and everything. And she's like, no, and I talked to, I thought you'd be great at it, Suzanne. I talked to my boss about you, and he wants to meet you. Do you want to meet him? I'm like, bucket list occupation, here we come. Yes, hell yeah, I want to meet him. So we go to, it wasn't the scariest part of town. It was just the most abandoned part of town, part of the city. If we were in the Wild West, you would see the tumbleweed going across. It wasn't dangerous because nobody was there. All the houses were boarded up and ivy growing over. We went to this abandoned building, it looked like. Walked around back and walking in uh, the back boarded up door, all of a sudden we go through this high security door, walk up the stairs, this long corridor, and it opens up into this huge, nice pimp condo. Seriously, like you would never know from the outside. And it was gorgeous. And it was decorated like real cheesy, like you think a pimp would decorate his bachelor pad. Like there, there was like fake ferns everywhere. There was uh, white leather couches everywhere. There were questionable stereo systems all over the place. A big movie theater sized TV, 30,000 remote controls in the coffee table, you know. And this guy, he's like a, he was like a mild-mannered Jersey Shore kind of guy. And, and he, was, he was always just too stoned to be aggressive. He was never aggressive. He was just real nice. And I always seen that guy, every time I saw that guy, he was always in silk boxers and a bathrobe. I don't think he ever left his house. I think he envisioned himself as kind of a young Hugh Hefner, like he can work out of his house in his pajamas and his girls are around him. So we were sitting there talking. Now, something you have to know about me to understand this story is that uh, when I was uh, born, I was born with a bone disease. When I was three years old, I had my leg cut off. So right here is where my uh, my leg starts up here. And I wore this artificial leg, this prosthesis. Can't really tell, you know. And I wore it like it's a part of me. It's totally natural. And the room goes quiet. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But I've been wearing this prosthesis since I was a little kid. I get up in the morning, I put it on, walk about my day. I don't think about it until there's an issue. And there's a lot of people who have prosthetics that they put on in the morning. You know, glasses, contacts, dentures, strap-on, you know, that you put on and you walk around and you don't think about it. You don't put in your contacts and walk around all day. I have contacts. I have Until it's like a dust gets in your eye, right? And then it feels like somebody's stabbing you with an icicle. So you don't think about it until it's an issue. It took me a minute to realize, oh, this pimp is hiring me for a job. I should probably let him know. It might be a point of interest to him that I have this artificial leg, especially since it has a tendency to fall off during sex. (laughs) 
So I tell him this. He already knew. Nora already clued him in. But Nora just started laughing as soon as I tried to tell him this. And she just goes, ah! It's a rooster watching the Simpsons laugh. Ah! Oh, Suzanne, you're going to be great at this. You'll have the guys moaning so much they're not going to notice your leg. The pimp starts cracking up laughing. He goes, that's what we're going to call you then. We'll call you Mona. So that's how I got my hooker name is Mona. So, and Mona did well. Mona did so well. I was making money hand over fist. I quit my day job. I had a day job. I was a collection agent. (laughs) But I could quit that. I was like, oh, finally. I was making money. Mona was good. Mona did good. I felt empowered. I felt sexy. I was finally, you know, guys were paying me to have sex with them. How cool is that? I wanted to have sex anyway. You know? So after a while, after several months, there were uh, three different kind of archetypes of the clientele that you get in a high-end escort service. There's the boyfriend, and then the boyfriend just wants to make love for the first five minutes and then spend the rest of the 40 minutes telling you how much he loves his girlfriend. That's the boyfriend. Then there is also uh, the businessman who usually has this really inordinate supply of cocaine for some reason, and he wants to do cocaine, get a really long blowjob, and brag about his yacht. And we all know he doesn't really have a yacht. (laughs) And then there's the bachelor party, you know, slash birthday party that's self-explanatory. So one day I get this call after several, several months, doing good, feeling fine, I'm empowered. I get this call to go do this bachelor party. So I'm not thinking about it, and I look good. I have this little cute little outfit on. I have little bobby socks and little skirt, little football jersey, hair and pigtails, whoop, whoop. You know, and uh, I go there knock on the door and a guy comes and answers and I'm like hi I'm your hooker for the bachelor party and he goes stay right here Vinny will be right out I'm assuming Vinny's who called okay so I stand there and I'm seeing all the guys in the corner like looking and talking to each other and then whoever I presume is Vinny walks up to me with his fist out and kind of getting started to get worried about there his fist comes out And he opens it up, and he has $900 in it. It's $500 was for my gig for doing the bachelor party, and $400 was for the tip. He said, we changed our minds, but here, take this. We don't need you anymore. After months of feeling good and not thinking about it, because I don't think about it, I realized that they looked at me, took one look at my leg, and grossed the fuck out, and would have rather paid me almost $1,000 to go away. And then they, they're going to have to hire another hooker for that night than, than, to actually, than to actually just, you know, have sex with me. Why wouldn't you want this? I don't know. So I was crushed. I was completely, my ego, I didn't think about it because don't, I don't think about it until there's an issue. My ego was completely crushed, and I didn't know what to do at that point. And I realized the more and more I thought about it, the more I realized that I grossed them out. Like, they looked at me, and they didn't see sexy, empowered Suzanne or Mona. You know, they saw, you gross. I'm not sleeping with that. And it hit me, the, just the severity that hit me. And then I didn't get any more calls. I was getting a couple of calls, like, a day. 
I didn't get any more calls. I started to get worried. I'm like, well, they obviously called and complained about me. Um, you know, so all of a sudden the money stopped. I was starting to get worried. A couple days later, days go by, I get another call. Oh, thank God. Okay, I still have my job. Okay. Empowered. Woo, sexy. I go to this hotel room. It was a businessman, so I'm like, okay, coke and yacht and blowjobs, whatever. So I go to this hotel room. Little did I know that the guy I was being called to had cerebral palsy, like really extreme cerebral palsy. So I knock on the hotel door, and he answers it, and he's full wheelchair, can only only half of his uh, body's, you know, mobile. And uh, so he's like, well, now that you've seen me, is it okay? You know, do you want to still come in? And all of a sudden, I turn into, like, the super disabled representative of the United States of America. I'm like, yes, of course I want to come in. And it kind of freaked him out because I did it way too enthusiastically. So I came in and because my thing, I'm like, well, I'm like, this is terrible. I can't be, you know, grossed out. I, I can't be gross for somebody. That's horrible. My ego can't take this. So for some reason, it was this weird self-righteous kind of fucked up redemption. I had a, a logic I had in my head. If I could, you know, do this guy without being grossed out by his disability, then fuck those guys at the bachelor party for being grossed out. Then I'm not gross. So I was totally grossed out. <laughs> and that's the risk. I know, uh, but no, that's, I was fine. I was fine. I was fine. That, that's the risk of the story. It's not me coming up here talking about being a call girl. It's not me coming up here talking about my leg. What's really risky is coming up here and actually admitting that that, you know, that, yeah, it was grossed out. And, but here's why I grossed out. It was okay until I was going down on him, and I was jacking him off, and I was, you know, giving him a blowjob. And then he started to drool on my hands. And it's like one thing when you're watching a porn and somebody spits on somebody's cooch. You know, that's like bearable, you know, but it's a whole nother thing when it's because somebody's mouth is paralyzed and they have no control and they're dripping. And all I could think about was when I used to wrestle around with my cousins and my brother and we'd hold each other down and drip the saliva string going down because that's, it was just this stringy getting all over my hands. So I'm like in, in my head, but I kept on going, man. I kept on going. I'm like, disabled unite. You know, I'm taking one for the team. I am the hooker with the heart of gold. And then he tipped really well. So I'm like, instant karma. Uh, so I, then I leave and I walk to my car. As I'm walking to my car, the reality starts to set in that I hadn't gotten any calls since that bachelor party complained about me. And then I get this call. Uh, the reason why he picked me out of all of the girls to go to this guy's uh, hotel room was because I was the hooker with one leg. Oh, and I got super offended. I'm like, what, we're, I'm supposed to stay with my kind? Like, what is that all about? I get You call the hooker with one leg to go to the cerebral palsy guy's uh, hotel. So I got so indignant. I'm like, oh my God, I never, I cannot believe in this occupation, in this professional occupation... <laughs> Because who am I kidding about the Bachelor guys? Like, John Sinbad girls for not being blonde enough. You know, like, of course people are, if they don't, if they're not digging on my leg, that's, you know, they, they're paying for it. They should, you know, get what they pay for, I guess, you know. So I figured after that, I called up and quit. That was the last time 
I ever took money, the last time I ever took money for having sex, I'm still a whore. <laughs> Empowered whore. But now I'm a stage whore. And it is, I'm telling you, it feels so much more empowering and sexy to stand up here with my clothes on, delivering the jokes, instead of my clothes off being the punchline of one. So, and that's my story about being one-legged hooker. story tonight. Uh, Once again, we're going to switch gears. uh, Somewhat more emotional terrain here. uh, A slightly different uh, topic. You know, it's been a real treat working with him on this story that normally he, you know, does not get up and tell stories. Normally he uh, makes music. He he is a part of the uh, group The Poor House Says. And he is also a father and a lucky husband. And I really think that this story he has to bring us tonight is really beautiful, a really uh, lovely way to end our evening tonight. Please welcome to the stage, Matt McGahey! So I was the, uh, the third-born son to very loving and young fundamentalist Christian parents, and they were set on having lots of kids and and following our church's rules and expectations about how we were going to be raised. And and so for a while there, it it seemed like any time that my family's, they called a family meeting, it usually meant we were going to be gaining another family member. So there were five boys at the time. My parents called us all into the living room. Boys, God has given us a new sister. You see, my mom had discovered Sarah on TV as a part of a news program called Tuesday's Child. Sarah had been born into a family that couldn't care for her and her special needs. The doctors had originally said that she wouldn't walk or talk or function much at all due to hydrocephalus or fluid on her brain. My mom, she fell in love with Sarah's beautiful long red hair and her sweet smile, and we adopted her. She became our sister. At first, she could only scoot around on her knees to get around, and she had some difficulty communicating, but, you know, to me and my brothers, she was really just another sibling to come along, to take care of, and, you know, eventually mess with. I'd uh, sometimes try to help her get dressed in the morning, and I'd, I'd wrestle to unbend her arm, which was constantly crumpled up. We'd get it through one sleeve with some tears and some frustration, but we'd usually just fall over in a pile of clothes on the floor, and my mom would have to swoop in and rescue us with her effortless care. But, you know, Sarah was, was already exceeding the expectations of the doctors, and, you know, she was fitting in right, too. And she was feisty and full of life. She wasn't helpless at all. It was like she had been with us all along. A couple of years passed, and it was time for another family meeting, and you guessed it, my mom was pregnant with her sixth son, 
We were going to be leaving the suburbs and moving up to the country to, to live on 30 acres of undeveloped land. We were going to be furthering our church's mission, living communally off the land with our neighbors. Me and my brothers were thrilled. We had our shirts off and our cutoff jeans on and those, those uh, hiking boots with the red laces, you know, before my parents could even finish telling us the plan. <laughs> so we built this big log cabin. My dad... Uh, put the floors inside while we got to camp out outside, and we'd watch Little House on the Prairie in the evenings. And my mom would tuck us into bed every night saying, good night, sweet dreams, and God bless. And we did have sweet dreams. Life, life was so good. We got to play outside so much together. We'd run through the woods, waging war, riding our horses, organizing neighborhood football games, breaking our bones, slicing skin, and just living up to our reputation as the boys. But I can always see Sarah sitting in this sandbox whenever we'd, we'd run by and wonder, how long have Mom and Dad left her out here anyways? Why would she swat that fly off her arm? Then I'd be off, usually feeling just a little guilty that she, she couldn't join us. I mean, she couldn't keep up. But she was gaining more independence now. She was communicating pretty well, and she was walking with some assistance. She had these, these custom-made leg braces that, that had the foot molded into the position that, that her foot was supposed to be in so she could learn how to walk correctly. And her face would contort. She'd squirm away whenever my parents would put them on. I, I hated that she had to wear them, and they stunk, too. Me and my brothers, we'd hold them up into each other's faces to see who could tolerate the sour milk stench the longest. But, I, you know, I always felt like it just it created more struggle, more effort for her to walk with them on. I guess the idea was that the long-term effect was greater than the, the short-term discomfort and pain that it caused her. So Sarah was, was really doing much better than the doctors said she would ever do. She could see, hear, smell, taste, touch. She could scream and yell at us when she didn't get her way. But she was a brat and an angel and a tormented sister. We would uh, sometimes string her dolls up from the rafter and dangle them just out of her reach. And she would shriek for our mom to come up. And mom would run up the stairs and think there was some huge emergency going on. But she'd never, you know, bust us in the act. All the while, we had been maintaining a fierce devotion to our church. Our life was not slowing down. Uh, We all actually eventually transitioned into public schools, including Sarah, and that was a big deal for her. We participated in Special Olympics with her. She came to our baseball games. She was able to, to keep up. She'd play in our tickle fights and fight for seconds at dinner. Came time for another family meeting, right? So we all stroll in the living room, casually awaiting the word of my mom's next child. We already had seven at this point, so what's one more? One of my brothers said, I'm not sharing my room this time, and somebody punched him on the shoulder. And my parents, they weren't laughing. What they told us was that we were going to be leaving our church. And this, this was impossible. I mean, how do you leave a church? You see, my parents had always explained church not as the place, right, but as the people, these people, our chosen family who we had surrendered our spirits to, spoken in tongues with. I mean, how were we just going to leave these people full of my, my babysitters, my elders, my mentors? I, I just didn't understand. 
How could we just leave? I mean, I, I couldn't just leave my family or, or, or be told to go, could I? But what I learned was that we were being told to leave. You see, this church was into having people publicly repent of their sins, stand in front of the congregation and tell everybody what we did. One of my brothers had gotten into just a little bit of trouble, and they demanded this of him. But my father said, no, I'm not going to have my son publicly shamed. So the church said, you know, if you can't follow our rules, you're out. So we were out. And that's a betrayal that I will never forgive or forget. And it's not that I blamed God for it. That's just when I stopped believing in him. So a couple of years passed after that. I was becoming a teenager. I adopted the word whatever into my vocabulary and <laughs> used that to express my opinion on all things. Was I hungry? Whatever. Was I thirsty? Whatever. But I come into the living room for another family meeting. Whatever. I think we knew by now that mom couldn't have kids anymore or something about her tubes being tied, so... We thought this was going to be something good. A new vacation, I mean, a, a four-wheel or something. My, uh, my dad did most of the talking. My mom, she was a silent partner. We were to be the accomplices. Boys, my dad said, we've made a very difficult decision. He went on to tell us that he and my mom couldn't take care of Sarah anymore, and that after over 10 years in our family, we were going to have to take her to a new family. And he tried to explain how it wouldn't be fair to Sarah to keep her in our family if, if we couldn't take care of her, and that this would be best for her. And you know, we were used to that argument whenever we got punished, the old, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and it's for the best. Bullshit. I don't know if Days or weeks passed. But the next thing I do know, we were all dressed up in our Sunday best, loaded up into our van, and off to the Department of Family and Children's Services to say goodbye to our sister. You know, I've always struggled with what to call this, this dropping off, this dismissal, this removal of a sibling from our family? And I, and I wonder, what if they would have tried to drop one of my brothers off instead? I mean, would I have put up a fight? I mean, really fought? Because I do that now. If anybody or anything tried to take a family member, I'd fight it to the death. But I didn't fight for Sarah. I was 14. I could have. And I should have. Instead, I said, whatever. We got into a single file line. We walked up and gave Sarah one hug goodbye. She put her arms around us tightly and smiled at us while we walked away. And we left her in this strange place with a social worker. Who does that? Who leaves their sister? About a year passed, we had another family meeting. My parents told us that after over 20 years of marriage, they were going to be divorcing. And my father told each one of us in his own time why. For me, it was several months later, 
He was driving me to go drop me off for a date at the movie theater. Sitting in the car, he said, Matthew, I want to tell you the reason why your mother and I are no longer able to remain married. And I didn't even care now. I'm gay, he said. I always have been, and I fought it for so long. But your mother deserved the truth, and so do you. Whatever, I said, and I meant it. You know, maybe they were right. Sarah couldn't have survived this. As with war and accidents and tragedies and crime and loss, you know, we just accept that there will be casualties. I mean, you don't, you don't drop a bomb on a village and expect no women and children to die. Sarah was the casualty of my family's separation. And she's gone now. I'm telling this story now so I can try to bring her back somehow in some way because I don't know where she is. You see, when my parents divorced, we, we scattered. My two older brothers, they split. My mom moved to New York with two of my younger brothers. She was following her dreams for once. I stayed behind to live with the baby of the family with my father and his new boyfriend and their home in the city, which was a far cry from our home in the country. And it didn't even occur to me to look for Sarah amongst all the other missing things. Now, I don't know what I would have done if I would have found her, but I never stopped worrying about her. And I'll always desperately wonder, is she alive? Is she okay? Is she hungry? Does she need anything? Because if she did need something that I could give her, I would. And if I could find her, I'd, I'd take her back. If she'd have me. It's been over 20 years now since we said goodbye to our sister Sarah. We find ourselves at a lake house one summer. My entire remaining family still intact. My mom and dad and their spouses. All my brothers, our families. Everybody is together and happy and healthy and whole. We're okay now. You see, my mom, she met my dad's coming out with such grace and forgiveness. And she paved this path of healing that we were all able to follow. And it allowed us to remain a tight family unit. So now, sitting down on this dock, 20 years after we said goodbye to Sarah, we finally start talking about her again. And I asked my brothers, how do you guys think Sarah would have fit into all this now? And without missing a beat, one of them says, she'd be fine, man. She'd be just fine. Look at all this love. Look what we have now. She'd be fine. See, we know now that our collective survival, it came at a cost. And in my mind, the greatest loss in all of this was Sarah. You see, at the time, people took solace in assuming that, that Sarah couldn't comprehend leaving one family to join another. And I know that makes them feel better. I just didn't believe it then, and I don't 
believe it now. You see, I think, buried under the water in her brain, clenched up in her hands, embedded in the fibers of her muscles and in her long red hair, you'd find us. We'd be there, sitting on the stairs waiting to have our picture taken on Christmas morning. We'd be there while she sits in that sandbox watching us laughing while we run by. We'd be there stringing her dolls up from the rafters. But we'd be there. And if I could, if I could find her, you know, maybe I, I could find all of us and, and bring us all back to this house that we grew up in and that we, we never really wanted to leave in the first place. And we have tried looking for Sarah. We've only hit dead ends with lawyers and past teachers and case managers. But we, we hold out some hope. We hope we'll find her. My mom just sent me a message today and said that she still dreams about Sarah. I didn't know that. She says that in her dream, Sarah's alive, and she's somehow found a way back to our family. So yeah, we hope we'll find her, but we have a greater hope now, I think. The love that, that bound us all together at the beginning, that it will continue to survive. Because look, I know we're never going back to that house, and we're probably never going to get Sarah back. But I have to believe that the love that bonded us all together is something that we can always go back to. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is passion pit behind me now we just heard from matt mcgahee and we want to say thanks again to loot crate the monthly subscription box for geeks gamers and pop culture nerds from bad guys doing good things for the wrong reason to good guys with questionable tactics august is the perfect time to explore the anti-hero walk the hero villain line 
with this 100% exclusive collection of items from DC Comics, Archer, Dark Horse, and Kill Bill that includes two great collectibles, a wearable, and of course our monthly tea, and don't forget the pin! You only have until August 19th, 9 p.m. Pacific, to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it, it's over. So go to lootcrate.com risk and enter the code RISK to save $3 on your new subscription today. Risk is appearing live on August 5th in Toronto. Come on out, Toronto, on August 6th. We're in Montreal. If you live anywhere near Montreal, tell your friends. Come on out. On August 20th, we're in Los Angeles at the bootleg. On August 24th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On September 17th, we're in Salt Lake City. Come on out, Salt Lake City. And pitch us for that one, too. The theme is outrageous. And you can pitch us if you go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. On November 11th, we are coming to New Orleans. November 11th, we are in New Orleans. The theme that night is legends. So pitch us, folks, at risk-show.com slash submissions. On November 12th, the next night, we're in Baltimore for the first time. The theme that night is wounded, and we're still taking pitches for that. You can follow me at the Kevin Allison on Twitter. You can follow Risk at Risk Show on Twitter or Facebook. And don't forget, we teach storytelling too at thestorystudio.org. There's video classes, there's one-on-one -on -one training, there's in-person courses, there's corporate workshops. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Too many, too many, ah, too many limbs! Ah!